0: This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know, from your favorite books and the world in which they live, to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story, Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome back to Publishers Weekly Radio, Sirius XM Book Radio, Channel 80. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we are bringing you the very best of book talk. We're coming to you directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. So if you can hear some sirens behind us, that's why.
0: And you most likely will. <laughs> and we're here for you, and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at PWRadio at PublishersWeekly.com or tweet them to uh, at Pub Weekly Radio. That's PubWeeklyRadio. P-U-B-W-K-L-Y Radio.
1: Today we'll be talking with best-selling thriller author John Sandford about his latest novel, Silken Prey. Then Reviews Editor Peter Cannon will join us to talk about some other big thriller titles.
0: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list powered by Nielsen Bookscan.
1: So, do you want me to start off with fiction here?
0: We could, though. Should we take a look at the books that we picked, or yes. is this is this part of it? <coughs> no, our, I'm I'm, okay, I'm certainly do, happy to, okay. to
1: start there because I think uh, I think we're we're both in the money this week. Yes,
0: yes, and and I think you may be in a little bit more than than me. So, last yeah. week we picked one book. There was a novel that was uh, coming out, and uh, you picked it to be in the top.
1: Yes, I was very conservative. You were very conservative. Um, This is Nosferatu, N-O-S, number four, A, number two, by Joe Hill. Uh, And it is number six on our fiction bestseller list, so I probably could have been a little less conservative. I could have called it for the top ten. This is a book that's definitely getting a lot of buzz among my friends who read horror and thrillers. It's it's definitely in that crossover section of the sort of supernatural thriller vibe.
0: Now, looking at the title, I I see it is N-O-S, for a 2 mm-hmm. and what was the significance of that?
1: It's a license plate and uh, the idea is that there's a fellow who's driving around the south uh, in a 1938 Rolls Royce Wraith, of course, of course. Um, with a license plate reading <laughs> Nosforatu. So this this is like sort of strolling in and going, "Hello, I'm the bad guy." Right, right. <laughs> oh, <laughs> he, he really he really doesn't care if you see him coming. Right, um, right. He he gets to be this great sort of spooky supernatural villain, and uh, his his name is Charles Manx. I mean, you know, it really it really doesn't get. Any less subtle than this, and he arrives in our world out of a place called Christmasland, mm-hmm. which is uh, as we had a, a signature review in Publishers Weekly of this book, which was written by Joe Lansdale, who is another author of these interesting sort of, southern horror thriller right. novels. And he describes Christmasland as a phantasmagoric amusement park full of dark possibilities, and in spite of its child-pleasing name containing about as much light and happiness as a concentration camp at midnight. So that gives you the idea of the kind of vibe this book has it's very dark it's right. very grim um, this may not surprise those who know that Joe Hill's full name is actually Joe Hillman King he's the son of Stephen King or one of the sons of Stephen King his brother Owen King is also a novelist right and uh, actually we thought about getting Owen to review Joe's book and then we decided we might, we might we might set up some sibling right, rivalry right. there it would be a little awkward
0: but Owen decided to write under his real name yes. rather than uh, Joe
1: who took a pen name and um i think joe very deliberately took a pen name because he's writing in a, a similar genre to stephen king's he's writing these these dark supernatural books right. and he definitely didn't want people to say oh well he's just writing his father's coattails so he published a couple of books as joe hill before he revealed his parentage or the mm. secret leaked out i'm not really sure which came first right, right. Um, and he's definitely made a name for himself really just on the strength of his writing so uh this this is definitely uh this book i say has earned its place on the bestseller list and uh, joe lansdale said that uh, this novel is riveting from beginning to end and joe hill has become a master of his craft
0: oh fantastic
1: so that's number six on the fiction bestseller list for next week's publishers weekly bestseller
0: Wow! wonderful any more fiction that you wanted to talk about?
1: Sure. And there's a couple of other things. I definitely wanted to mention uh, The Apple Orchard by Susan yeah. Wiggs. Uh, this is a totally, totally different sort of thing. It's a small town, novel, romance-ish vibe uh, mm-hmm. coming out from Harlequin's Mira imprints. So it gives you a, a sense of that. And uh, it's it's definitely all, all sweetness and light, uh, though with some dark secrets hiding underneath an interesting family story. And we said it's classic wigs. It has an emphasis on the strength of family and friends. And the landscape of Sonoma, California, which is wine country, Mm -hmm. uh, is really integral to the plot. Mm -hmm. So if you're you're not so much in the, the supernatural thriller end of things, you might pick this one up instead. And it's number 11 on our fiction list. Right. And finally, I wanted to mention Claire Massoud's novel.
0: It's been in the news quite a bit. Well, uh, news generated by us? Yeah, <laughs> so this is kind of our fault. Uh, <laughs>
1: we we did an interview with Claire Massoud, uh, which was she was interviewed by Anna Sue McCleve Wilson. And this uh, was published in Publishers Weekly on April 29th. So over the past week, it's gotten a whole lot of buzz uh, because you know, it starts out as a pretty straightforward. Interview talking about you know her characters are struggling to find out who they are in the face of their families and mm-hmm. you know, her the middle the the central character of Masood's novel the woman upstairs uh, is Nora Eldridge she is a betrayed middle aged woman and she is really really angry she's a school teacher too yes I think, yeah. yeah she's a school teacher she dreams of being an artist mm-hmm. uh, in our review of Masood's book we say she is angry cynical and quietly desperate. Mm. And so the interviewer was talking with Masood about this and said, you know, um, you, you wouldn't want to be friends with Nora. I and mean, her, her outlook is almost unbearably grim. And Masood's response to this was, well, for heaven's sake, what kind of question is that? Mm-hmm. And she went on this... Abulous rant. You know, would you want to be friends with Hamlet? Would you want to be friends with Oedipus or, or Oscar Wow or Antigone or Raskolnikov? I or mean, Humbert you know, Humbert. Humber, Humber, yeah. Humber. I mean, it's just it's all these all these main characters who are angry or cynical or bitter or sad or frustrated or or not very bright. You know, who for whatever reason right. would be terrible people to be friends with. But that doesn't stop us from wanting to read about them. Mm-hmm. And and the way that she took on this question uh, and really fought back against it has been. Making a lot of buzz in in book circles,
0: and I guess the point that she was she was making this is that all the characters you just mentioned are written by men, mm. and she said, it, and it almost seemed to be at least when when you're looking at Slater Salon, that it was a reaction like, is this a, is this? I think she was reacting to the thought that why would you ask a question of a woman writer, right? This when you know would you ask would you have asked Nabokov about? Humpert Humpert.
1: Though she, she does cite Alice Munro also. Oh, she does. Okay. Uh, she right. says, Would you sure. want to be friends with any of the characters in anything Pynchon has ever written, or Martin Amos, or, or Han Pamuk, or Alice Munro, for that matter? Mm. She says, If you're reading to find friends, you're in deep trouble. We read to find life in all its possibilities and the relevant question isn't is this a potential friend for me but is this character alive right and just the way that she put that has really grabbed people so it's, uh, her book is number 20 on our fiction right. bestseller list, and uh, I think everyone here has been wondering a little bit whether maybe the buzz from the interview has driven some sales of the book. That's one I'm of those sure. questions that's impossible to answer. yeah, yet. of
0: course of course I mean and of course she has a strong name in herself you know she's a serious writer sure uh, of literary fiction herself so that's it is true it you do wonder what kind of news out there is going to uh, kind of pump sales a little bit.
1: And one last thing I wanted to mention on the fiction list um, is number twenty five and it 's a graphic novel and I just wanted to bring that up because mm. it 's kind of rare for a graphic novel to crack the top twenty five i don't remember oh, the last wow. time that happened
0: yeah what what yeah. is that one
1: uh it 's the graphic novel of stephanie meyer 's new moon really so Twilight is continuing its popularity, the Twilight series. <laughs> Um, is uh, remains popular in every conceivable format, and the latest is um, it 's really it's it 's a manga right. style graphic novel um illustrated by young kim and uh, it 's definitely uh, hitting hitting every possible demographic and I just thought it was it was fascinating that uh, this particular book would reach the bestseller list
0: wow that's that 's pretty fantastic and we have seen and i know we 've uh when when we 've done our best books issue our best annual best books here at PW, there have been a couple times that we've picked a graphic novel as one of the best books. Oh, definitely. But
1: they uh, rarely hit the bestseller list, which is a a slightly different measure of a book we can talk about quality but the bestseller list is about quantity exactly the quantity of sales the quantity of readers who are interested in reading it and uh, there's there's, Stephanie Meyer has an enormous fan base there's no question about that
0: and of course Mouse uh, was one that was a bestseller for a while
1: yeah it's it's rare but it does happen yeah I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're giving you a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. Mark, what do we have on the nonfiction side?
0: Well, there's one book that came out. I I said also, now I'm realizing conservatively, that it was (laughs) going to be number five, or at least in the top five. And really, I, I, I think I could have guessed that it would have gone all the way to number one. And this is Amanda Knox's Waiting to be Heard, her memoir about her imprisonment uh after being uh in, in italy this is in italy after her being tried for murder uh right. and then she was acquitted moved back here wrote a book and now the the trial they've been asking to repeal the trial so that was that was a hundred seven hundred fifty thousand copy it was embargoed we did not get a chance to review it but it is at number one
1: yes so, and to no surprise right
0: exactly exactly so let's see what else we have here nathaniel philbrick one of my favorite writers of, of histories, uh, he wrote Mayflower. He writes a lot about New England history. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he has a knack of picking out a seemingly small event and, and really breaking it out in, in history. This one is Bunker Hill, A City, A Siege, A Revolution. Mm. And this is about the uh, American victory of Bunker Hill in 1775. And he is able to bring this history out by... Focusing on a charismatic leader, uh, Joseph Warren, who was actually killed at Bunker Hill, was pretty much forgotten, but through his research, and this is uh, many of his books, I mean, historian, research heavy, uh, he's been able to bring out and kind of brought him out for as the man who is uh, orchestrating the on-ground reality of the revolution. Now, this landed at uh, number nine. On our list, mm-hmm. and uh, our review uh, says uh, Philbrick tells his tale in traditional fashion briskly, colorfully, and with immediacy. We, we say that the book would have been benefited from a point of view more firmly grounded in a contemporary evaluation of the battle, but even as it is, no one has told this tale better and this one i I really could have picked for the uh, Top ten. Mm. And, uh, and there it is. Now, another one. First of all, well, Michael Pollan's Cook, which we talked about last time, that's still on the list. And that just bumped up from six to five. Mm-hmm. Uh, still selling a lot. Uh, and, and I think basically because so many uh, Americans now are, are kind of consumed by what we consume. And that one is still still moving up, and, and food is always a big topic.
1: I was going to say there's another food book that I spotted on this week's list. Yes,
0: exactly. And this is from Mark Bittman, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, New York Times columnist and uh, the minimalist columnist and the author of many uh, best-selling cookbooks. But this one is a little bit a change for him. It's called VB6, that is Vegan Before Six. And this book is kind of a, uh, it's a cookbook, but it also lays out a diet plan to eat vegan before 6 p.m.
1: Now, when you, say, the, yeah. when you say a diet plan, is that specifically like a weight loss plan or is this more of a lifestyle change? Kind it's
0: of a lifestyle change. And this is, uh, this came about when Mark Bittman, who at the time uh, was 57, uh, went to his doctor and the doctor said, you're pre-diabetic at heart risk by Really having no limitations as to what he would eat, mm-hmm. and he said, "You know, you might want to turn to a more of a vegan diet." And Mark Bittman took this to heart and started really looking at how we how he eats. Mm-hmm. And his argument is that if you eat vegan before six, so no bacon, no Cheerios, but no maybe eggs. no eggs. No eggs for breakfast. No eggs for breakfast. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, instead, maybe oatmeal with some fruit. For lunch, again, some fruit, salad, maybe some brown rice. Mm-hmm. That once you get to six o'clock, you could pretty much eat whatever you wanted within reason. And this is, uh, and he lost a lot of weight on this, but more than anything, it was really a way at, at how to, to eat healthier. And this one came in at number 11 on our list.
1: I, I will say, as someone who's, who eats vegan fairly frequently, um, because I can't have dairy products, mm. and sometimes it's easier right. to just look for something labeled vegan. Is that there are a lot of unhealthy ways to eat vegan too, and I, That's a I very good point. I knew you're a vegetarian right. who basically lived on microwaved vegetable burritos, and that was that was not the healthiest way to live. Sure, yeah, so, no,
0: you're absolutely right, and and this, so I think it's,
1: it's important to take this with a grain of salt, as it right. were, and and just to to make sure that you're getting a balance of nutrients, right, and and that you're you're actually eating healthy food. I mean, there's there's plenty of stuff. McDonald's French fries or vegan, now that they don't fry them in beef fat anymore. Right, so Right, <laughs> exactly. That doesn't, that doesn't mean they're healthy.
0: Right. Now, should we just take a stab at next week? Sure. So, I'm
1: game. I, I'm, in, I'm enjoying this. I okay. think I think maybe we could take a few more chances here. All right.
0: Now, here's something. Uh, Benjamin Percy, coming up from Grand Central Publishing, a novel called Red Moon. Uh, mm. This is a novel about werewolves, a futuristic yep. novel of of werewolves, and but we got...
1: we reviewed it under fiction, actually, not science fiction. So right. I haven't I haven't seen it, though I've certainly been hearing plenty about. It. They're pushing it hard.
0: They really are. I mean, with a hundred thousand copies, um, would you call this a, a thriller, science fiction, or would you call it? I don't know. Thriller? I don't know
1: enough about it. Um, yeah. It certainly got supernatural elements, mm-hmm. but uh, as I said, we called it fiction. We said it was right. more of a mainstream title with broad appeal. So right. uh, that's that's a hard question to ask. And and part of the reason I'm going to be Actually, a little hesitant to call this one for the bestseller list is I don't know who would buy it i where I haven't been seeing Buzz for it is among all my friends who read horror and science fiction
2: oh that's interesting I haven't heard
1: anyone mention it at all right because you know he's, that's that's sort of the downside of going to the mainstream side of the force as it were is it um, right. he's he's not getting a lot of attention from genre fans right who but who, but it's a werewolf who, yeah. book you know if if he could somehow straddle the two um right then then he'd probably have it made but i i don't i don't know that that's happened
0: yeah i think it. right i'm that's going a to reserve really good judgment point. On that's on a good re- I, you know what i i'm just just for the sake that's out there i'm gonna just put it on the top 40. it's going to hit one of our okay. top 40s so. I, I think that's probably <laughs> okay, i think that's great. probably okay, safe good, good
1: but the one that i am going to call is dead ever after by Charlene harris right. this is a big deal they're printing one million copies because it is the last suki stackhouse book And those of you who followed True Blood on HBO uh, know very well who Suki is. And this is uh, the last book in the series that that started them. And um, they were originally called the Southern Vampire Mysteries. So they have mystery elements, they have vampire Mm. elements, there's a lot of sex, there's uh, a a lot of sort of fast-paced action. So these are books with broad appeal. I'm going to say number one with a bullet.
0: Wow. Great. Good. Good. I think I think you're probably right. I think, and I've got one other uh, cookbook: Hungry Girl 200, Under 200, Just Desserts by Lisa uh, Lillian. Paperback. She's done well before. This book will show up on the top twenty.
1: Top twenty. All right. Okay. Well, I'm taking notes, and we're going to come back to this next week and, uh, and and see how we did. Wonderful. I'm enjoying our prognostication. I know right? it's
0: been fun. This is great.
1: So uh, so we'll definitely check back on that. And in the meantime. What have we got next?
0: I think that's probably it for for this, our predictions and for our bestseller list.
1: All right. Well, I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark
0: Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, John Sanford will tell us how he writes his pulse-pounding thrillers. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Today, we've got John Sanford on the line. He's the author of numerous thriller novels, including, most recently, Silk and Prey. He's also a Pulitzer-winning journalist. Thanks for joining us, John.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: It's a delight to have you on. So give us a rundown of Silk and Prey. And this is the 23rd book featuring Lucas Davenport.
3: Right. It's a story about a political campaign that goes uh, off the railroad tracks. What happens is that there is a very attractive, uh, very good-looking, very rich uh, young woman who's running for the U.S. Senate in Minnesota, and she is doing quite well. But unfortunately, even though she is doing well against a uh, an entrenched Republican senator, she's losing. And one member of her campaign staff decides to fix that by planning some uh, child pornography on a computer controlled by the Republican senator, and then have it discovered. This, because he's a conservative in a, in a district that swings back and forth, and this is only a week before the election, you know, threatens to, to destroy his uh, candidacy. Mm-hmm. And then as, uh, as this whole idea begins to fall apart, they have to wind up killing a couple people to cover it up. And the candidate is directly involved in those decisions. And so Davenport is brought in to investigate exactly what happened and try to sort it out in the week before the election takes place. So that that's the basic outline of the story.
1: There's a lot going on in there. And I actually I got a chance to read the book, which is fascinating. And I found that there are a lot of interesting female characters in there. So you have the Senate candidate who you mentioned, uh, who's rich and young, and everybody keeps talking about how good-looking she is and how rich she is. There's uh, Lucas's wife, who's a surgeon, and his wise-ass teenage daughter. There's a woman who's a jewel thief, a bodyguard, a couple of federal agents. What led you to include such a wide variety of really independent, tough women in your book?
3: Well, I, I always do. Virtually all my books do that. And, you know, not to be too cynical about it, but I cater to a certain extent to my female readers because I think I've got a lot of them. So there's a particular kind of female character that I'm looking for. And the description you just gave is pretty much what they are. They're intelligent, they're tough, they're independent. They're not anti-male. They generally wind up having fairly decent relationships with people, and that's why, uh, you know, what it is is just an effort to make them attractive.
1: So to make them attractive mostly to your female readers, but I expect your male readers enjoy that too.
3: Mm -hmm. When I talk to people, you know, when I talk to audiences and stuff, I, I often get questions about them, and I do find that the male readers like them also. They, they just—they're um, just sort of an appealing kind of, you know. You know, a lot of this is an engineering job of trying to figure out exactly, uh, you know, how to put a character together. And now that you've asked this question, it makes me think. I wonder if I'm getting a little bit stereotyped in in, in the way I build a lot of you know tough, likable female characters, and maybe I should have a few that are uh, you know the dish rags. But people seem to like them this way.
1: Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just a matter of giving your readers what they want. And uh, I don't want to give away any spoilers here, but at the end of the book there's a little bit of a hint that we might see Taryn Grant again, that Senate candidate. Do you have plans to bring her back in future novels?
3: You know, I don't really have plans to do it, not nothing specific, but I definitely wanted to leave it open because I, by the time I got to the end of the book I had a couple of different ways that I could go, and when I decided you know, how the book was going to end, I thought... Uh, she turned out to be an interesting enough character that I'd like to spend some more time with her. Actually, and more de- and, and develop her character more, so she could pop up in another book. I've done that in the past uh, with other characters. Actually, the the biggest character I did it with in the past was another very tough, harsh female character, and I came back to her too because because uh, it's it's interesting to develop their characters further.
0: I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with novelist John Sanford about his new book, *Silken Prey*. You have a spinoff series featuring Virgil Flowers, a secondary character in the *Prey* books. How did he earn a starring role?
3: Basically, you earned a starting role because because I wanted to start writing a second book every year, and and what I was doing is I was looking again. A lot of these uh, a lot of these characters are, are very engineered. Davenport. Uh, has always been sort of this uh, a guy who was pretty harsh in a lot of ways uh, a guy who was kind of very rigorously tough mm-hmm. and I thought it would be fun to have a character that was a little bit more laid back in in, in the Davenport books I've always had a little bit of fun letting my uh, sense of humor loose but you couldn't let it go too far because of the, of the nature of the books I mean you're talking about uh, you know always about murder about kidnapping about multiple murder about about really mm-hmm. vicious killers i wanted a book that was a little bit looser a little give me a little bit more range to use humor in and some of the virgil books have also been about pretty harsh and kind of ugly uh, crimes that have been committed that virgil has to track down mm-hmm. in the book i'm finishing a book right now on tour i've gotten until the 15th to get it done and after that mm. uh my editor's probably going to come after me with a gun, uh, but I've got I've got until the 15th to finish it. So I'm sitting here copy editing between interviews and doing wow. these shows. <laughs> wow, and, and I've that's got, dedication. But the, but the in this book nobody gets killed. Oh, uh, a guy dies a natural death that he's going to die anyway, whether or not he's involved in a thriller. But he <laughs> he uh, nobody gets killed, and uh, I mean there's there's a lot of criminal activity going on. But it was a lot of fun to write it, and it's got uh, it's got some really interesting characters in it. I think it's got enough characters for an entire you know I, you know I could spin off nine books mm-hmm. from this one book that I've got.
0: Well, you know, I, I'd actually like to go back a little bit to your uh, to the beginning of your fiction writing career, at least fiction writing and publishing career. You wrote The Fool's Run under your own name, and this is what would start the kids' series. But for Rules of Prey, the first. In the Prey series, you changed your name, and why was that?
3: It was uh, purely for uh, advertising and publicity reasons. What happened was that um, I wrote Fools Run, and my agent Esther Newberg sold it to mm. uh, Henry Holt. And then I talked to Esther, and uh, and we got I think fifteen thousand dollars for uh, Fools Run. Mm-hmm. And I talked to Esther, and I said, you know, I, you know, fifteen thousand dollars is fine, given the what I was doing at the time. But she said, you know, you could make a living for this if you just wrote bestseller style books. And I said, well, what's that? And she said, and she explained it to me in about (laughs) 30 seconds. It's got to be longer, got to have more iterations, got to have more of a backstory and all that kind of stuff. So I wrote Rules of Prey in about three months, which is my first Prey book. And I they sold that for quite a lot of money to uh, Putnam, where I've been ever since. But the problem was is that both companies were going to publish it at the same time, uh, because Holt had kind of a long lead, but Putnam wanted to print it pretty quickly, and since it only took me three months to write it, they were going to come out right on top of each other. So Putnam said, look, we don't want to confuse it with Holt, because Holt is uh, quite a bit of a smaller book, and and, uh, and we want to go to a different style. So. We need a pseudonym. And uh, John Sanford is my great-grandfather's name. I, I mm-hmm. was going to use my mother's name, which is Barron, but it turned out there's already a best-selling author named John Barron, so I went to my <laughs> oh, great grandfather.
0: so Oh,
1: It's the, the curse of having a a common first name, I guess. There's a, there's a limited number of last names available to pair it with at this point. And you had mentioned... Uh, Writing these female characters as engineering, and now you're talking about writing books to formula. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, or maybe if not to formula, but you know, by these by these guidelines for how to make a book a bestseller?
3: Well, it's it's not it's not really a formula. It, I mean, it's like sort of a loose it's sort of like a loose group of observations. Um, the I can hear what sounds like a police siren but I don't know if it's. From oh yes, yeah, it's it,
1: it's it's not thematic music. It's just because we're in our office in New York City, and every once in a while we get cars going by outside. So well, sorry, been, sorry I've, about that. I'm in a hotel
3: <laughs> in Minneapolis, and we also have the same thing here. So I okay. No, but the uh, it's just that you know you get an impulse to chase them. It's uh, <laughs> the, uh, uh, it's, it's uh, they're really not a formula. What there is, a, they're, they're sort of. a... A cloud of things that you try to keep in mind when you're doing it
1: mm-hmm. and one
3: of the things that i've always kept in mind if you're going to write a bestseller there have been a lot of very thin bestsellers uh bridges of madison county was a very thin book um you know uh, love story which was you know back in the 70s was a very thin book but most bestsellers have a certain heft to them and i've often thought that that was because people would read them on buses and they would want you know to read for a whole week uh, and so, and, and so I tend to think of best-selling books as pretty much have to have 95 to 100,000 words. So they're going to be a certain length, and I keep that in mind when I'm doing mm-hmm. it. The same thing is when I'm engineering a character. My characters, if you, if you look at Michael Connelly's characters, for example, they're very real cop characters. If you, if you look at a Michael Connelly, Connelly character, you can go to almost any police station and find that guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at mine, you can't do that. Uh, Mine are a combination of movie stars and cops that I've known and just regular people. They are, you know, Davenport is tall, good looking, blue eyed, Mm -hmm. got a violent streak, likes women, uh, wears expensive clothes, Mm -hmm. uh, rich, drives a Porsche. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a character that is that uh, even if you don't like him, 100 percent like him, at least you kind of admire him. He is willing to break the law, but he is always sort of seeking justice. So you have a, a bunch of characteristics like that that I think that people are attracted to, they like. And so, so like I said, it's not a formula, but it's like a, it's like a cloud of aspects of people. So now I have a woman in the new Virgil Flowers book who's a redneck. She uh, is running a hustle in which her son puts a bunch of lumber down at the bottom of the Minnesota River, and they take it out a year later, mm-hmm. and then they drive it to New England where it's sold as antique barn lumber. Oh, wow. um, and, and Virgil <laughs> is actually investigating the scam, you know, and so, so it's not like a kidnapping or a murder or something like that. So there's no – but what it is 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 sort of makes you chuckle when you read about it because it's such a stupid thing to be doing, and yet they're making a living doing it. And this woman is a redneck, but when she was in ninth grade, uh, she, her IQ was tested. And it was 151, so she's really, really smart. And uh, so I say you have this kind of cloud of characteristics that are that are going to make people like or smile or appreciate that particular character. And that's what I mean when I say you engineer them. You actually build them so that people will like them. It's not just, you don't just kind of pull them out of some dark spot and stick them into the spotlight. Um, You know, they're just, they're carefully built.
1: I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with novelist John Sanford about his new book, Silk and Prey, and how he engineers his books and his characters. Now, one thing that you mentioned is that Lucas is a rich guy, and I noticed in the book there you frequently sort of bring up these luxury brands like his fancy cars. Uh, That's a little bit of an unusual focus for a thriller novel. I'm more used to seeing that in women's fiction. Uh, Is it meant to give this kind of American James Bond feel? What's the idea behind that?
3: Well, it, it's not so much American James Bond. I, actually, I don't think James Bond was rich. He just uh, had a lot of cars supplied by the government. But, the, <laughs> but but Davenport, at one point, was kicked off the Minneapolis Police Force. And uh, he had been, even in the very first books, he, he developed games, uh, uh, role-playing games, which he did as a sideline to make money because he wasn't making enough money as a cop when he started out. When he was like 25, he started out as a cop. And that Segued into making uh, computer games, and that developed into a thing where he and his company, after he got kicked out of the police department for police brutality, actually they developed 911 uh, games in which, in which you could plug a Davenport game into your 911 system, and then you could rehearse all kinds of you know really ugly and violent crimes and, and crime management by the 911 personnel, and he got rich doing that. The reason that I did that was, again, it's interesting that you brought up the idea of women's magazines or women's books, is is that because I wanted a guy specifically to appeal to women, and I remembered a couple of movies from quite a way back. The Pope of Greenwich Village was one. Sure. There, there was another one where, uh, where where, the guy, there's an opening sequence in which he is kind of stroking his clothes and his neckties. He, he was a cop in Los Angeles. mm mm-hmm. um, and, and it struck me that that appeals to women. And so I, 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 I deliberately put that in there as, as one of the things. And then I, I, I also have him go out and go shopping. I suppose every other
0: time oh, wow.
3: he spends some time in a store, you know, talking mm-hmm. to people about right. fabrics and about clothes and about that kind of stuff. And, and that's the reason I do that.
0: So, John, I have to ask, you've written now 32, 34 novels? Yeah. And, and a couple of nonfiction books as well. Yes. How do you do it? I, and for, for our listeners out there who are uh, you know, hopeful writers, wannabe writers, I mean, this, this is a, an amazing amount of work and, and books that you've amassed. How do you do it?
3: Well, you know, the thing is, is that first of all, my background is in newspaper. Right. You're, you're not allowed to get writer's block. Uh, they send you out <laughs> right. a story and they want the story yep. like three hours later. And uh, when I was working at the Miami Herald, I had a job where I would come in at 9 o'clock in the morning, and there was always some assignment waiting for me, and and I would jump in a car, and I'd I'd drive off to this thing, and when I got back, I didn't know whether I was going to be on the front page or a section front or if I was going to be deep inside. It all depended on what else happened today, so everything was relative. So I might have to write two inches but on the other hand i might have to write 45 inches and have a couple photographs with it so i didn't know so that's the kind of training background i came from and what i found is that if you and 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 i'm sure that stephen king would tell you the same thing if 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 you sit in your chair every day for four or five hours you will produce a lot of books Mm -hmm. what other people try to do is they try to have a life and uh <laughs> and, and and that's the fatal mistake <laughs> that that that's the fatal flaw you know in trying to be a writer is you actually want to have a life and and meet people you know and go to parties and stuff like that and um i don't do that i i write i i, I work four or five hours a day virtually every day of the year and, i
1: I have uh, a friend who calls it the work work balance
3: yeah it's just it that's <laughs> that's what you do
0: Right. Mm-hmm. I'm Mark Watten and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with novelist John Sanford uh about his book Silken and Prey and a little bit on his uh on his own writing and now under your real name John Camp you were awarded the Pulitzer Prize for your reporting on Midwest uh, on the Midwest farm crisis. Was fiction a diversion for you or or was there always a fiction writer underneath?
3: There was always a fiction writer underneath. I always had it in mind that I would do this. Uh, one of the things that happens is that is that when you when you want to be a fiction writer, you have to have certain resources you can go to, which is why it 's so rare to find really young fiction writers or very talented, very young people in their twenties, but their fiction often doesn 't work out unless it 's some kind of drippy thing about a romance or something like that you know about about you know the like like first love or something like that because they have that experience, but if you're going to write thriller novels, especially a range of them about police it it helps a lot to have some information about that. Patricia Cornwell, for example, worked in a coroner's office before she became a before she became well, so she had that mm. background. So it didn't really worry me too much that I was spending a lot of time as a newspaper reporter, but I always wanted to write fiction. Right. But all the stuff that I was looking at as a reporter, you know, kind of stacked up and gave me the texture and the feeling I needed to be a writer. There was a, just to continue this a little bit, there was a, uh, I had an idea for a, for a thriller series in which a guy uh, would be a really good golfer, and then he'd win the, the National Publings Tournament, and then he would then go, he was a cop. But he was a really good golfer. That's all he did during the day, so he worked at night. He wins the National publings tournament, and he gets an invitation to the Masters, but when he gets there, somebody at the Masters tournament has been murdered, and the people who mm-hmm. run it want him to investigate it to keep everything quiet, and he does that successfully. Then there's a basketball team owner who hears about this, and he's got big trouble with one of his stars, so he hires a guy. So you have a series of thrillers based on sports. Mm-hmm. My problem is i would never been around – professional athletes i'd never been in a locker room mm-hmm. i passed this idea on to another guy who had done all that stuff and he actually wrote a series of books based on that so wow. <laughs> the, you have to have that background i think and you, if, if you want to write the kind of fiction that i write or that michael connelly writes or that a couple of other people write. You, you you have to have because people really feel that lack of texture if it's not there
1: so when there is something that uh, you want to put in one of your books that you don't know a lot about, how do you research it?
3: I don't really very much. The, uh, I, I usually try to avoid doing that, try to avoid... Uh, I mean, you know, like, like if, if you're a newspaper reporter for as long as I was doing general assignment reporting, you've seen virtually all the crimes that, are, that you're ever going to need to be a thriller writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I was working in Miami, I'd be doing, say, two criminal stories a week. Uh, you know so i so i 'm doing a hundred of them a year um, and 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 then you 're following them, and then you actually follow them sometimes right through the whole court process and you 're tossing to prosecutors and defense attorneys and stuff like that, so you see all that stuff and you 're talking to cops in the street all the time and uh, and so most of it is there mm-hmm. a lot of the stuff like in this current story with Taryn Grant a lot of that was my response to the kind of the ugly kind of politics we developed in the last couple of elections here. And so, so I guess I'm getting that out of television.
0: We've been talking with John Sanford. You can find his new Lucas Davenport thriller, Silk and Prey, in stores right now. John, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Yeah, thank you very much for talking to me.
1: Thank you so much, John. It's been a pleasure. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, PW Reviews editor Peter Cannon will tell us about some other hot thrillers coming out soon, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today our guest editor is Peter Cannon. He's here to talk with us about thrillers. Peter, what is hot in the thriller world?
2: The two books I wish to discuss are actually spy thrillers. Mm-hmm. The first is a debut of uh, Jason Matthews' Red Sparrow. I went to a lunch uh, for mr matthews that his publisher gave about a month ago he is a former cia operative with 33 years experience Mm. he spent the lunch regaling the company with all sorts of anecdotes from his time working for the cia he's of greek american background so he was stationed in in greece i asked him a question well you know, what secrets do the greeks have that we'd be interested in <laughs> after all they're a nato ally he said well their order of battle uh, in case they ever go to war with turkey mm. as we all know the greeks and turks do not get along very well right. even though they're allies right. there's always that potential sure and he said we actually got the order of battle you know from an agent in case of a war with turkey but when the agent showed up maybe maybe this was uh, matthews himself it was all in one long roll. Hmm. And he had to wrap it around his leg uh, (laughs) to escape from the safe house.
0: Wow.
1: What an adventure.
2: Anyhow, I said, gosh, this guy's a great storyteller. So this is something I have to read. And I believe it's my summer pick. I have read it and it is a wonderful spy story.
0: And Peter's talking about the summer pick for Publishers Weekly, which will be online, or is actually currently They're online. online so we, uh, each of the staff here uh, picks a book that he or she thinks would make for good summer reading. So.
2: This is indeed an exciting story about a young male American agent in Moscow who's controlling a top mole in the Russian Secret Service. But he runs into trouble in the first chapter, and basically he gets demoted and sent to Helsinki meanwhile there's this lovely young Russian spy female who ends up going to what do they call it there's sort of a euphemism like sparrow camp in other words she learns to be a a seductress
1: Mm
2: -hmm. and I believe this may be based on something that really exists anyhow she uh, joins the Russian secret service gets trained and her main mission turns out to be to find out who's controlling this top mole and expose the mole and it goes on from there there's lots of complications and because the author knows this stuff it's filled with what we call trade craft right about how they follow people and take take turns and and all the the nitty-gritty nuts and bolts involved Mm in being a spy and it ends on something of a cliffhanger it's the first in what I think is going to be a trilogy.
1: And what's the title again?
2: Red Sparrow.
1: Red Sparrow. Ah,
0: and
2: thus the the camp.
1: And <laughs> when is that out? Is it out now?
2: No, I believe it's a July mm-hmm. book.
1: All right, so it's definitely something it's, that that our readers, that our listeners, can uh, keep an eye out for.
2: Look forward to. Yes, we we did a Q and A with the author, mm-hmm. and in his Q and A, actually an interesting anecdote. He's he's. A big admirer of Ian Fleming. Mm-hmm. And while people tend to dismiss the James Bond books, he says a lot of that stuff is pretty authentic. For example, in From Russia with Love, right. how, to, how to extricate an enemy spy. He said that's that's done well in both the book and the film. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He also mentioned that he's a great admirer
0: of an established author, Charles McCarry.
2: Which leads to my
0: second book. Well, before you go to the second book, I had you. You said something that you described the nuts and bolts of. Uh, uh, you used a term, the trade uh, trade craft, and, and and this is something that is in thrillers. Yes, a, a term, in and,
2: spy thrillers, and I think that's what the CIA people right. refer to it as. Right.
1: So it's just the details of, of how these operations work. Do you, do you ever think they obfuscate the details or, or get things deliberately wrong so they're not giving away our secrets?
2: They may be, but, you know, it sounds authentic enough. I, I can't tell the difference right. <laughs> unless you're a spy right. yourself. And I think because this was fiction, he didn't have to have it vetted the same way right. he would if it if was, it a was non, nonfiction. Right, a, sure. a memoir, right? Right.
1: I'm Rose Fox and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio where Senior Reviews Editor Peter Cannon is telling us about some hot thrillers for the summer and uh, as as often happens on Publishers Weekly Radio we've got our atmospheric sirens in the background. So Peter what else was that about, uh, what else is on your list?
2: The second book is Shanghai, The Shanghai Factor by Charles McCary, an author that uh, Jason Matthews much admires. Mm-hmm. Now Mr. McCary, I believe, is in his 80s and has written many spy thrillers. I had not read one myself until I read The Shanghai Factor. Now, he hasn't been a spy for decades, but reading this book, which is set mainly in contemporary China, I thought, gosh, this guy really knows his stuff. There are certain similarities to the other book in that you have this young male American agent in Shanghai. He's a kind of sleeper agent. And the novel opens, he's riding his bicycle, and he collides with this attractive young Chinese woman Mm -hmm. on her bicycle. In fact, she runs into him, and she insists that he buy her a new bicycle, and they go to a store. Well, anyway, they soon become lovers, and it's clear to him she must be some agent for the Chinese Ministry of Security. He gets sent back to the US, he meets with the head of counterintelligence at the CIA, or headquarters as they call it, And what's interesting about this book is there's not a whole lot of action. It's more about the psychology of the individual spies. Mm-hmm. And it's beautifully written, you know, terrific prose. As the PW Review says, this is the real star of, wow. of this book, how well it's written. Hmm. And there, are of course, twists and turns. But by the end of the book, you know, not a whole lot has, has changed. I mean, there's a kicker at the end. I don't want to give away, obviously. Sure. But again, it's it's filled with this kind of trade craft that you find in the other book that makes it all sound very authentic.
1: And all of these sound like they're really also about going to somewhere far away. You, you talked about Russia and Helsinki and the Jason Matthews book and now China. And do you think people are reading these also for the details of, of foreign countries?
2: Possibly. Well, I'll tell you one interesting thing about Red Sparrow. Mm. Both of you, I know, are big cooks, culinary mm-hmm. types. Each chapter ends with a recipe huh. for a dish that a character has eaten in that particular chapter. In certain cases,
0: unfortunately, it's their last meal. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. But
3: Which and, is, yeah,
1: that's does, what we need is the, the last meal cookbook. Of,
0: ooh, right. Exactly. <laughs> and you know what? I think there might be one out it, there. <laughs> and how does that work within the narrative structure? I mean, it does works.
2: It, oh. I, You know, cozy mysteries often have recipes integrated in the plot, and they're pretty superfluous. Here, what's wonderful about them, first of all, because the action moves all over the world, and there's so many different nationalities, you know, each one has a different ethnicity. And also the recipes in the sense, they're not giving specific uh, amounts. He says, you know, take some of this, some of that, mix it up. Mm-hmm. and describes within a fairly brief paragraph, mm-hmm. and you have the sense you have enough information to make this yourself if you're interested. Right. So, you know, it's what they're eating in the commissary in the Russian secret right. service agency in that particular day, that, that sort of thing.
0: And do any of these recipes of food tie-in or become part of the plot, or is it just something a little extra?
2: It's just a little extra. Yeah. I mean, they didn't have to be there, Right. but it's a nice extra. I, I think it works. Right.
1: That sounds like fun. See, that makes me think this sounds more like something I would pick up. I mean, I, that just sort of sounds quirky and kind of great. Yes,
2: I mean, again, something else to, to set it apart
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, from the usual run. And the PW freelancer believed th- this was the best spy thriller that's come down the pike in, in some time. Mm-hmm. So even if you're not necessarily a spy fiction fan, this might be one to, to start with. And there's a lot about Putin and Putin's Russia. Putin Mm. even appears as a character. But he comes across as a pretty sinister fellow, although he's mostly in the background.
1: Mm -hmm. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, where senior reviews editor Peter Cannon is telling us about the summer's thrillers. So just give us those titles again and uh, when they're coming out.
2: The first is Red Sparrow by Jason Matthews. Mm -hmm. I believe it's July and... The Shanghai Factor by Charles McCarry, also July.
1: All right, so we'll definitely keep an eye out for those. And you mentioned that Red Sparrow is the start of a trilogy. Now, I, I think of thrillers as being these sort of endless ongoing series. Mm-hmm. Are trilogies and, and other sort of established series, archetype series, also common?
2: I don't know, but I can see where a life of a spy <laughs> has a kind of natural life. Right, after a certain point. So hard to sustain for for, for very long. Yeah. Yeah. And my guess is that just struck the author as the natural length for this this series. I mean, there's so much going on at the end. It was so complicated with moles within moles. I'm not sure if he's honestly going to be able to sort of maintain the complexity and the coherence right over another two books but he might yeah i mean he's he's made made a certainly an excellent start
1: Mm -hmm. great and what other trends have you seen in thrillers for the summer
2: i don't know if i've seen any particular trends but i do want to put in a plug for another thriller i've read oh certainly that's come out is out now i believe Mm -hmm. and that is Philip Kerr's The Man Without Breath, Mm -hmm. the ninth entry in his Bernie Gunther series, which is...
1: I think I've heard you talk about these a bit.
2: I've become a huge fan over the last couple of years, and I've read them all,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: more or less in order, but you don't have to read them in order because they they jump around. But basically, the lead character, Bernie Gunther, is an honest, hard-boiled Berlin cop in Nazi Germany, mm-hmm. both mm-hmm. during the 30s and 40s. And it's really about his trying to maintain his moral integrity when, when criminals are, are, are running right. the place. This latest one is actually set in mostly in Russia. Mm-hmm. It's centered on the Katyn Forest Massacre, an actual historical mm-hmm. event where the Soviets massacred thousands of Polish officers in 1940. Mm -hmm. Right. And the graves weren't discovered until the spring of 1943 by the occupying Germans. And they said, aha, here's a chance to pin an atrocity on our enemy. Mm -hmm. And Bernie is now working for the Wehrmacht War Crimes Bureau. This is something I didn't know, that the Germans actually had a bureau where they're trying to pin... Atrocities on the on Britain and mm-hmm. and the wow. Soviets and so so forth, and here they they have a real case. Right. But as typically happens in one of these novels, you're getting all the historical background, but there's also a more kind of mundane crime going on. In this case, a serial killer is bumping off Germans associated with the headquarters around Smolensk. Mm-hmm. So you you have a conventional you know crime story, sure. where you're trying to find the killer. Meanwhile, there are these real life crimes going on where thousands right. are are dying. You know, plus the war. So it's fascinating all the historical detail, and it's funny. He's he's kind of a wise cracking, hard boiled PI in in the American. Mode as far right. as I can tell, I, I don't know if he's really typically German in any fashion. Right. We again at PW did a Q and A with the author, and also I have to wonder what do the Germans think of, right, right, of these, exactly. yeah, these, yeah. These, are they these, translated well, sure. into German they are translated into German and one of the questions wow. in Q and A was well yeah well how have they been received and he said well in Berlin. The mm-hmm. Berliners have always been kind of more relaxed and uh, about themselves and their past and they're they're popular right in in Berlin. I should say Americans have been the villains too in in past installments. Right. Mm-hmm. It's not not just the the Nazis right. but Kerr is able to write almost sort of classic mystery plots in the Agatha Christie mode, meanwhile giving you all this history.
0: Well, Peter, thank you so much for joining us tonight and talking about those books uh, and that will await in July. I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: And I'm Rose Fox. That's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at or tweet it at PubWeekly Radio. That's Pub WKLY Radio on Twitter. We would love to hear from you.
0: Tune in next week for more excellent book talk right here on Sirius XM Book Radio Channel 80. Thanks for listening.
1: You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.